Do you love your work? Do you think it's possible? Well, you're about to find out. It's time for 48 Days to the Work You Love with Dan Miller on the 48 Days Online Radio Show. Whether you need a professional tune-up or a work overhaul, this is the program for you. Now, here's your host, Dan Miller. Well, welcome in. This is Dan Miller, and we're ready for a humdinger here. You know, sometimes... The questions that come in, well, always the questions that come in are intriguing and things that I could not possibly dream up, but some days it just seems like um, there's some great variety. Hey, we got questions going today. I mean, we're going to talk about making money from ministry. I mean, a lot of people struggle with that. We're going to talk about lazy husbands. We're going to talk about gambling versus investing. We're going to talk about being too old for success. Just a whole bunch of things that people have questions about today. Interesting questions. You know, this thing about finding work that you love is not just about how can you generate income. My gosh, there's all kinds of ways to generate income. It really goes way beyond that. So it it creeps over into other areas of our lives where it touches our personal convictions, our theology, our spirituality, our psychology, our relationships, and all those things. I mean, we can't just pull work out as one independent segment of our lives, can we? That's part of who we are. So it goes into these other areas and looking for questions that address those as well is legitimate. This last week we had a had a whole bunch of wild and crazy people here who eager coaches and and I love talking to people who are interested in coaching. But we were talking about the fact that um, remember the old Maslow's hierarchy of needs that we all studied in Psych 101 in school? You know, at the bottom of that pyramid is safety and security. Then you work your way up through self-esteem and belonging and all those things up to self-actualization as being at the very top. Well, in our culture today, there's a whole lot of people who really aren't that worried about safety and security. We're not worried about somebody you know, coming into your tent at night and stealing your food. So we have the luxury of moving up that pyramid and seem to pretty quickly go to self-actualization. What makes our lives worthwhile? What are we doing that makes a difference? What are we doing to that, that is noble or humanitarian or godly? So those questions bring new insight, a new kind of parameters to the idea of work that matters. I mean, again, we, we get out of the thinking that, well, I've got to get a paycheck this week to make the mortgage. I mean, again, a lot of people are, are kind of over that particular thing. There's a lot of ways they can do that. So the questions that we address on here, again, do go way beyond that. Hey, we had something this week that I came across that's a pretty dramatic, startling statistic. And this is what it is. Now, we're in 2010 here as I'm recording this, in the second quarter of this year, so that means April, May, and June of this year, 2010, more people quit their jobs than were laid off or fired. Now, that's pretty stinking amazing because we everybody's so obsessed with, gee, companies are laying off, they're downsizing, everybody's letting people go, there are no jobs, blah, blah, blah. More people quit their jobs than were fired in an entire quarter, three-month period. That's pretty dramatic. That means that people don't feel trapped. They aren't just grasping for anything that's available. They're saying, you know what? The workplace is volatile anyway. Now's a good time for me to kind of readjust, realign my life. So I am doing something worthwhile. And a lot of people are saying, you know, you know, a lot of times when people are left behind after there has been 
a downsizing or a massive layoff at a company, they don't feel too privileged. They feel like they got the shaft by being left rather than having, you know, graciously been able to keep their jobs. Because a lot of times when there's downsizing, I mean, you know what happens. A company expects the same kind of output. It's like the Pharaoh telling the Egyptians, I'm not going to give you a straw anymore, but I expect you to make just as many bricks today as you did yesterday. Well, it becomes increasingly difficult to do that. Anyway, just wanted to throw that out. But uh, to also remind us all that people are not feeling as trapped as what we might think looking at the headlines or listening to the news. There's a lot of opportunities out there. The number one concern of employers right now is finding and retaining great talent. I mean, they don't feel like there's a glut of people out there and it's just easy pickings to get people to come in. It's extremely difficult to find, recruit, and keep good people. Number one concern of employers. Well, let's go right into the questions. This comes from George who says, Dan, I got interested in the piano tuning idea. Now, he's referring to the, the 48 low-cost business ideas that I have as a free downloadable PDF at 48days.net. I mean, that's been downloaded over 50,000 times now, our web people tell me. So a lot of people are looking at that. We're updating that all the time, incidentally. And yeah, there, when I put that up there, I did it really quickly. And there's a whole bunch of spelling errors and things in there. And people have pointed those out. And I appreciate your noticing those things. But, uh, again, I'm kind of a big picture guy. I gloss over some of the details. I want you to get the idea, not be concerned that I spelled two T-O-O instead of T-O. But anyway, be that as it may, having it in a PDF does allow us to go in and make changes, which we're doing all the time. So if you downloaded it a month ago, it's probably different now and has additions in there. But anyway, George is referring to that. He says, I got interested in the piano tuning idea. So I called to request a free catalog about the school, etc. The lady I talked with basically told me I was too old to start this. I'm almost 60. I was really disappointed. Oh, well, maybe she was right. Now give me a break. Almost 60. So let's assume you're really close to 60. You're 59 years old. You're too old to become a piano tuner. I mean, to become a piano tuner. I'm generalizing, but you you buy the little course, you can go through it in a weekend, and you're ready to start tuning pianos. I mean, it's not like we're talking about a four-year graduate program here. We're talking about a really short learning curve to have you up to speed and running. And at 60, you're too old. What does that mean? Does that mean you're too old to do anything worthwhile or to start at any new direction? You ought to just kind of pack your suitcase and get ready for, you know, (laughs) for the dirt ride. I mean, my gosh. At 60 years old, if you figure out what you really want to do, you can go into the most productive two decades of your life. Tell that lady, I mean, don't listen to the lady by all means. Don't let somebody like that stomp you in the face and deter you from your dreams. I mean, I pulled up some things. I mean, I've got tons of things that address this. Winston Churchill failed the sixth grade. He was subsequently defeated in every election for public office until he became prime minister at the age of 62. And then, of course, he wrote, and we know it's famous, never give in, never give in, never, 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 in nothing great or small, large or petty, never give in except to convictions of honor and good sense. Never, never, never give up. 62. We would have not known his name prior to that. After Harrison Ford's first performance as a hotel bellhop in the film Dead Heat on a Merry-Go-Round, 
The studio vice president called him into the office. Sit down, kid, the studio head said. I want to tell you a story. The first time Tony Curtis was ever in a movie, he delivered a bag of groceries. We took one look at him and knew he was a movie star. The vice president dismissed Ford with, you ain't got it, kid. You ain't got it. Now get out of here. That was to Harrison Ford. Uh, I don't think Harrison Ford paid attention to that dude. Of course, in 1954, Jimmy Denny, manager of the Grand Ole Opry, fired Elvis Presley after one performance. He told Presley, you ain't going nowhere, son. You ought to go back to driving a truck. This one, I love this one. When Pablo Casals reached 95, a young reporter asked him, Mr. Casals, you are 95 and the greatest cellist that ever lived. Why do you still practice six hours a day? Mr. Casals answered, because I think I'm making progress. Isn't that a great answer? 95 years old, he's practicing six hours a day to improve his performance. Of course, we hear stories like Colonel Harlan Sanders. who got his first Social Security check at age 65, and that check was for $103. That was for a month. He thought to himself, either I can decide to live on $103 a month for the rest of my life, or I can take a fresh look at what I have to offer that has value. So he put his little recipe together for cooking chicken and started crossing the country, visiting restaurants, trying to get them to pay him five cents per chicken cooked with his recipe. He visited over a thousand restaurants before he found one to agree to such a novel idea. But as we say, the rest is history. But he was 65 years old and broke when he started the idea that made him and a whole lot of other people millionaires many times over. Don't listen to somebody who tells you when you're almost 60 that you're too old to be a piano tuner. Go ahead and do it. Let us know six months from now that you're making $80,000 a year, and it was the best decision you ever made. Well, let me insert a, a clip here. This comes from Jay, calling from New York. It's more a comment than a question. Let's just insert that here. Hey, Dan. My name is Brian Karp calling from Long Island, New York. don't have a question. i got a comment on one of your questions. Uh, I want to thank you. I've been listening to your show forever. Uh, I got my real estate license about a year ago, commenting on one of your people thinking it was a good time to get involved in real estate. It is an unbelievable time. I've been doing semi-part-time. I haven't quit my uh, union construction job, but I do it on nights and weekends and whenever I have a spare second. I'm going to probably make about $60,000 from the uh, real estate. Um job this year, going to have probably between 15 and 20 closings, and it's the best thing I ever did. I'm going to slowly uh, integrate myself into the full-time real estate broker. So thank you so much. I love you. Ever want to give me a buzz? All right. He gives me the phone number there. Great. Thanks for your call, Jay. You know, we love to hear stories like that. And, and a lot of people have asked, you know, why would I want to start in real estate now when we know real estate, it, real estate is so depressed? Well, when real estate has a little market correction or a little downturn, about 70% of the agents put their license in escrow, and it means there's a whole lot more activity for the 30% that remain. I mean, we see that happen a lot. People talk to me right now about coaching. They say, well, geez, Dan, you know that, you know, now's a horrible time to start a coaching practice because people are just buying the bare necessities. They certainly aren't going to do something that would be seen as a luxury like getting coaching. I'm thinking, you got to be kidding me. I mean, we've just had 3 million people lose their jobs in like the last 18 months. We've got all these others who are choosing to quit their jobs, trying to figure out life. This is not a good time to be a coach. I mean, it's like shooting fish in a barrel.
But you know, those same people, when things turn around, the economy is really good. They're going to say, well, Dan, you know, nobody needs coaching now. Everybody's doing what they love. Nobody needs us now. It's a mentality. It's a mindset that is going to defeat you no matter what the economy is doing, as most success principles are. It doesn't matter what's happening, you know, in the White House or in Wall Street, what's happening in your house. That's going to determine the kind of success that you have. Well, Brent says, Dan, I know my passions travel, poverty alleviation, businesses, missions, fitness, accounting, economics, but I haven't figured out how to monetize anything. I'm a CPA and will be moving out in 2011. I'll continue searching for the work I love, but I'm afraid of analysis paralysis. Any suggestions on how to get started and refine as I go? Well, yeah, Brent, you know, as an accountant, you're an analytical thinker. And yes, that can be a blessing or a curse. You know, you probably have the ability to find a fatal flaw in any business idea before you start. And thus, there's a potential to never begin anything new. But as a planner, as an analytical thinker, you can also create a clear plan of action and see the projection, see things that others don't see. And yes, just a brief comment on this, but you can monetize your passion for poverty alleviation or business as mission. I mean, there's a lot of terms being given to that social entrepreneurship, ethical capitalism, you know, doing good while doing well. I mean, there's a lot of ways to frame that, but you, you really can do that. I mean, don't think that just because you want to help people in poverty that you can't monetize that and take care of your own needs and provide resources to bless a lot of other people. I mean, you truly can. When you hear me talk about my son, Jared, the work that he's doing, I mean, he's um, helping these you know, poor ladies, who most of whom have resorted to prostitution in Africa, uh, just to get milk for their kids. And uh, he's helping them with micro enterprises, creating these beautiful jewelry and pottery and baskets and other things that they, where they can hold their head high, be providers for their families, and provide income, not only for themselves, but for the organization and for the facilities that they come into to work in every day. And there's very legitimate ways to do that, even with the poorest of the poor out there. And, and incidentally, along this line, a lot of people kind of Mm, they kind of take a deep gulp when you talk about making money from ministry ideas. You know, how could that be possible? Well, my buddy, uh, Rabbi Daniel Lapin, I mean, he, I say he's my buddy. I mean, I've met him a couple of times. He's a wonderful gentleman, wrote the book, Thou Shall Prosper. But in that, he, he addresses, a, well, you know, I'm not sure it's in the book, but when we, he was here, not too long ago, we were asking him some questions, and one of those was, you know, does God want you to be rich? And he gets asked that all the time. Does God want you to be rich? Here's how he answers that. He says, God wants you to be obsessively preoccupied with the needs of others. I'm going to run that by you again. And then think about the implications. God wants you to be obsessively preoccupied with the needs of others. Now, what do you think happens more often than not, if you are obsessively preoccupied with the needs of others, money shows up in ways that you didn't expect it. Just do that. Don't worry about being rich. But if you really do care about others and help others, I mean, the old Zig Ziglar premise, you can get anything in life you want if you help enough other people get what they want. And that's a very valid principle. Zig has certainly proved that in his own life, and thousands of others have used that same principles for the success that they were looking for because they were helping a lot of other people be successful. I mean, it's certainly a model that, 
that I have used over and over again. So yeah, go ahead and use your planning skills, but, but just take one idea that you've got and figure out how can you monetize that. Now, there's also another principle there. Jim Collins, who wrote the book Good to Great, talked about that because he had so much contact from people in the social sector, people in nonprofits, churches, parachurch organizations, nonprofits, universities, hospitals. I mean, those are all organizations where they say, we don't really use the bottom line, how much money we're making as a measure of our success. How can we know if we're a great organization or not? He says, you know, it's really no different. There are three legs to the stool, regardless of what kind of organization you have. Number one, what are you passionate about? Number two, what is it that you can do with excellence, perhaps better than anyone else? All right, and a lot of people understand that. They know what they're passionate about. They know what they can do really well. You know, they want to save the world. But then there's a third leg to the stool. The third leg is what's your economic model? What are you going to do to make this work economically? If you don't have that in place, it doesn't matter what you're passionate about and what you can do with excellence. You have to have an economic model. So it's not you know, self-serving or just capitulating back into capitalism. No, it doesn't matter what you want to do. You have to have an economic model. And if you can be creative and have an economic model that is self-sustaining, then you don't have to every month show up with your hand held out begging for money from rich people. I mean, to me, that's a pretty poor economic model for any venture. I don't care how worthy, godly, or humanitarian it is. Well, let's check this one out. Susie says, well, the subject line says 48 days or 11 months, still nothing. She says, Dan, purchased and read 48 Days to the Work You Love last November. Still haven't made any money from all the great ideas, talents, and pursuits. Have family with five children, two in college, need more help. Now, my husband says job is not in my vocabulary. The only made in the last 11 months is half pay from fire department. Um, Hard labor with an elderly couple's home who wants lots of remodeling. Starting outside in 160 degrees, thankful for some income to pay some bills, but it has to be better than this. Hubby took a job at local television station, which airs high school football games. Hubby was top salesman in just three days of work. Now he's, now he's so extra cranky, thinking I can do better than working for someone else 10 hours a day, which I know is 48 days philosophy, but please be reminded there has been no money to pay the bills for 11 months. He's taking money out of the fire department. Pension for food, mortgage, auto insurance, so on and so forth. Got kids in college. I'm afraid 48 days has made our life much more difficult. My husband has many, many talents, art, music, people, skills, design of any and everything. He's tried hundreds of different avenues to make money at the work he loves. He's an idea fountain. Give him a subject. He has dozens of ideas in less than 10 minutes. How can he make money at that? He hasn't figured it out yet. After 11 months of podcast, deep study of all things positive, Carnegie and Hill, uh, plus trying numerous inventions and varied avenues, unsatisfied customer. Well, I, Susie, I feel your pain. And, and believe me, let me go right to the bottom line. I think it's irresponsible to go for 11 months with five children and making no money. So what's the best plan to generate reasonable income? They want, in, in 48 days and no more Mondays, I mean, what I lay out is a broad continuum of possibilities. Getting a job is not the only possibility. It's one and a valid one, but it's only one. I think it's short-sighted for somebody to just go get a job without recognizing all the other possibilities that they may be overlooking. 
But I certainly don't recommend that everybody quit having a real job and do something more creative or non-traditional. No, I just want you to be aware of the entire spectrum. But here's the deal. If you have five kids and you aren't creating income, do something other than what you're doing now. I mean, that's, that, that's a pretty basic premise. If what you're doing now isn't getting you the results you need, stop doing what you're doing now. And I don't go 11 months on anything without seeing some income generated. Now, when I have started all, and I've tried every cockamamie idea out there, believe me, but I've never just pulled a plug on income generation and gone with one of my new ideas, just hoping on a wing and a prayer that it's going to create income. I always have a transition plan in place. I know I can back into some things and make our basic monthly income needs. I mean, I can paint houses, I can clean up cars, I can mow lawns, I can hang ceiling fans. And believe me, I've done all of those things as realistic things to generate real immediate income while I'm nurturing my other big ideas. So, I, I mean, I, I feel badly, believe me, that you, uh, that 48 days somehow made him think having a job was unreasonable. I want 48 days to open him up to the options that are available, but then to make an intelligent decision about where is the best fit to be the responsible provider that I need to be for my family. And if that's getting a job, then by golly, get a job. There are a lot of people that I see that I work with who have gone for periods of time trying to do creative entrepreneurial things, and golly, they've gone a a year and have exhausted all their resources. And my advice is, dude, Go get a job tomorrow. I mean, I worked with an accountant not too long ago, and he had done exactly that. He decided he was going to be an entrepreneur, went out on his own, and they were all excited about it. And in a year's, after one year's time, he had one recurring client at $200 a month. They had exhausted all of their savings. They, they had no resources at all. He was doing a lot of pro bono work for nonprofits. So he was staying busy, and I said, man, that doesn't cut it. Stop doing pro bono work for nonprofits. You can't justify just staying busy when you're not creating any income. I said, what you need to do is put this whole thing on ice and go get a job tomorrow. And he did that. Went to work. Got, I mean, went out and got a job. I mean, he's, he's a CPA. My gosh, he got lined up with one of the local firms here, accounting firms. Boom. Jeez, he gets a regular paycheck. They bought a new car. They got a place to live again. I mean, all those things we consider to kind of kind of normal that he had unplugged because he was chasing something that did not fit him personally. Now, does that mean that nobody can be an accountant and go out on your own? Not a chance. But it did not fit him well. He needed to be realistic about that and have a work model that did fit. Frank says, uh, Dan, now this is, you know, this is an interesting question. Boy, I love these questions that just kind of ew, go right to the heart of our theology and philosophies. Check this out. Dan, how do you balance the pricing of goods or services between charging a lot that only some people can afford, even though many more will want what you offer, versus charging less that many people can afford? Don't we create businesses to serve the greater good, not the select few? Now, do you let that sink in? Don't we create businesses to serve the greater good, not the select few? All right, so let's play that out. So that means that Hyundai is a better company than Mercedes because they're serving more people. 
Uh, is McDonald's a more worthy organization than Ruth Chris Steakhouse? Is Wrigley's uh, selling chewing gum a better company than a company selling fine art because they provide a product that more people can afford? I think we I, I think we go down a very slippery slippery slope if we assume that a company that provides a product that more people can afford is a better company or doing something more worthwhile. I don't think we can make that kind of judgment at all. There are a whole lot of companies that provide things that are only appropriate for a very few people. I mean, I mean that when we take this out of just the luxury items, I mean if if we are making a hundred thousand dollar printing press. There may be only one company in every major city that's even a prospect for that. That doesn't mean it's a bad company. It means they're very targeted in what it is they do, the product and service they provide. There are a lot of ways to bless people. And it doesn't mean that in your business, I mean, I mean, look at what uh, Microsoft has done. I mean, what they have done in being so successful financially is has been able to fund Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation where they're doing some amazing things in medicine and education around the world. They're not just out there saying, gee, you poor people, you know, living in a teepee need a computer. No, not at all. But the success of the computer business for them has allowed them to fund a whole lot of other very worthy things. You can do the same thing as an individual. You can sell, you know, space rockets where you're going to have a very limited Market. I mean, I, I know a guy here in Nashville who is a sales rep for one of the three brands of pacemakers. His audience, his target audience, are the eight or ten cardiologists here in the Nashville area. That's it. He doesn't have something that's going to appeal even to a broad range of physicians, that itself being a tiny subset of the population. But because of his success there, he's been able to go on missions trips and do a whole lot of really cool things. I mean, so, no, we, we, you don't price your products or services just based on how you can get it in the hands of uh, Joe Blow, you know, average American walking down the street. No, not necessarily. I mean, you, you price your products based on what is your target audience for the product or service that you have. Now, I also don't believe in this garbage about, gee, you just have a business that, you know, takes advantage of people, and then at some point you decide to give back to the community. You got to be given back to the community the day you open the doors in your business so that every transaction is a transaction where the customer gains something good, where there was something good done because they did take advantage of your product or service. Now, 48 days, I mean, we, we, strategically done a lot of things. I mean, somebody can spend $4.50 or they can spend $4,500 with products and services that we provide. So we do hit a broad spectrum of humanity out there. People can choose what does fit them, what will provide them with the information or coaching or whatever it happens to be or a live event, you know, what is it that will help them? So we allow them to choose by providing a broad spectrum of, of products that are all under the same umbrella. They're all designed to help people find what their passion is, find what it is that makes their heart sing and what it is that will move them into work. That's meaningful, purposeful and profitable. But that comes in a lot of different forms. 
again, it may be an audio CD, it may be a $10 book, it may be a, a live event, it may be working with one of our other coaches, or it may be, you know, talking about a coaching process with me. So, yeah, don't get, don't get hung up on thinking that more is better in this regard. And if you're selling Ferraris, my goodness, God bless you. Do it with your head held high. Have a great time. I know I'd enjoy that. And it's certainly not something that's going to appeal to the masses. Barry says, after listening to your podcast, I got motivated to look for a better job. I sent a resume to a company I admired. Sure, they would not be interested. I have been with them now three weeks. And I'm sorry I didn't do this years sooner. Thanks for the motivation to leave my safe but dead-end job. Wow, you know, you know that blows my mind, Barry. My goodness, congratulations. One resume and boom, you get a better job? That's pretty amazing in and of itself. I, I guess I have to wonder, what would have happened if you would have sent out 30 to 40 resumes like I recommend in 48 Days to the Work You Love? <clears throat> well, congratulations on your job. And yeah, isn't it? I mean, isn't that interesting, though, how you, you know, smack yourself in the forehead and said, wow, I could have had a V8. Yeah, you could have had a V8 a long time ago. You know, how we often just settle for the status quo, settle for what's right in front of us when we realize it's really not a quantum leap. You don't have to become a rocket scientist to make leaps forward in your levels of success in your life. Just do things that are strategically laid out. Well, here's another one that says uh, that, that is kind of on the same vein. Lisa says, Dan, I've heard you say identify 30 to 40 companies you want to work for, but that's where I always get stuck. My husband's a sales manager for a real estate company and a very successful trainer with a lot of professional accolades. He would like to identify other real estate training opportunities, but only the big companies, uh, there are only a handful, that would employ a full-time trainer. How do you search for companies that have training opportunities without looking on a major job website. I've gone page by page on a city business guide and chamber of commerce list. The industries I've come up with are real estate companies, business coaching. How can I find companies that are big enough for his services? Hurry in Houston, she says. Well, you've got some really inaccurate assumptions in here, Lisa. Don't assume a company has to be big. I mean, you could find a company with five employees where they had a position and a legitimate place for a full-time trainer. But also, my thinking, you know, kind of goes to the other end of the pendulum. As a trainer, why would you want to work full-time for any company? If you're doing a worthwhile training program, uh, your, your compensation should be far more for that training than any reasonable company would pay you in a 40-hour week amortization. Now, let me just kind of dissect that a little bit more. I mean, if I, I, I did a leadership management workshop for several years as I was building other components of my business. And it is easier for companies to write big checks. And so I had a three-hour workshop that I was doing on leadership development limited to 20 people, and it was $3,500. Now, think about that for a minute. I mean, if I had $3,500, and I, that was a three-hour workshop, all right? Let me just do this here real quick. Okay, so that's $1,166 an hour. So in a 40-hour week, that would be $46,000 and change. $46,000 a week. Now, you know no company's going to pay that. 
I mean, it just gets ridiculous real quick. But if you have the ability to be a trainer, then I think it's going to be a real downward compromise to expect to get a 40-hour position with any company. Be very clear about what your training expertise is, even if you have a handful of companies. I mean, you can have four or five companies. I mean, back when I was doing that, I was doing work for Deutsche Bank regularly, for NFIB, for Tennessee Department of Corrections, for General Electric. I mean, it was just a handful of companies, but, I mean, that was very, very lucrative when I was doing that. But there's no way in the world any one of those companies would have paid me anything close to the compilation of what I was getting from those four or five companies as a specific trainer. So I think you're I think you're looking for something that you're going to end up not wanting, frankly. Giuseppe says, Dan, in your podcast, I, I was responding. This has been a few weeks ago. But I was responding to a question about how. Gambling is different from investing. Somebody wondered if they could be a, as I recall, somebody wondered if they could be a professional gambler as a legitimate form of generating income. And I, I, in essence, said, golly, if you're good at it, if you know the mathematical equations and you really can come out a winner more often than not, I guess it's okay. I mean, it's certainly legal. There's nothing illegal about it. And I said that I don't think it's that much different from investing. In some ways, it's probably a, makes more sense because gamblers that I know who really do make money are very much in the driver's seat. They don't consider it just a process of luck. They consider they can tip the scales, the odds in their favor because they track what's going on. They're smart about it. Do people do that with investing? No. Most people I know they invest by just giving their money to some dude down the street who has a little office, and they just hope for the best. To me, that's more more gambling than going to Vegas and uh, playing 21 if you know how to count the cards. Anyway, Giuseppe differs with me. He says, I guess you didn't realize the big difference. When we do investments, we're directly or indirectly giving money so others can create and develop products. In turn, we get the profits that this will bring. In gambling, we only bet in the odds that someone else will lose, so our profits come from someone else's loss. Well, again, Giuseppe, I beg to differ with you. You know, the biggest gains in investing these last few years have been by benefiting from somebody else's loss. Jeez, I mean, look at the stuff that's done. Timing, short selling, and so on. Taking advantage of seeing other people's money go up in smoke. I mean, look at the big gains in the last 10 years. I mean, a whole lot of that just came from creating smoke and mirrors to lure the average worker into investing money in the schemes that these brokers had going on. They were going to make themselves rich by taking advantage of people who thought they were investing legitimately. Nah, I, I don't think there's a division that we like. We like to think that, well, gambling is somehow low class and blah, blah, blah. And investing is really highbrow and super legitimate and respectable. Nah, in many ways, I put them in kind of the same camp. Nathan says, Recently, you spoke about business models with repeat customers. I've just started a small business that installs attic insulation, programmable thermostats, and other energy-saving products. Boy, that's tough to to say. Jeez, I can't even talk about it. Installs attic insulation, programmable thermostats, and other energy-saving products. Well, what a mouthful. What do you think of the idea? Also, will not having repeat customers be a problem? Well, Nathan, you you can have repeat customers. I mean, you can always 
grow your business dramatically by asking for referrals from your happy customers. New technology is going to allow you to continue bringing new products and services to your audience of customers who are concerned about being green. And when you start in this path where you're going to help people have more energy-efficient homes, that really isn't just a one-time thing. And if you expand the things that you offer, that's going to grow exponentially. I've noticed recently that the company that we, uh, we have a contract for our heating and air conditioning service. They come out in the spring, check it, come out in the fall, do a routine maintenance, boom, boom, boom. Well, that same company now is doing plumbing work, electrical, roofing, I mean, windows, I mean, they're doing all of that. It's a Lee company right here, a wonderful company, and they've grown their base dramatically by offering more services to their existing customers. You can do the same. Josh from Minnesota says, my boss told me to look for a part-time job today because work is slow. I don't mind working extra, but want to know where it's headed. Now, now, think this through really carefully. The guy works for somebody, work is slow, and his boss says, you better look for part-time work. Now, Josh says, my job is in video production. Would it be a good idea to try and start my own business? How would my boss not feel undercut if I found jobs for myself? All right, Josh, think this through with me. You should definitely use your current skills, assuming you are now doing work you love to add to your income. Be specific about what video work you would like to do. But now here's the real clincher. You, you've created a dichotomy here that's an artificial dichotomy. You work for somebody doing video production and you say, wow, would it be a good idea for me you know, to really step out and start your own business? Guess what, Josh? You're already in business for yourself. You just happen to have one customer. If, if you understand and frame it in that way, you'll see it's not a quantum leap to then move to having four or five customers or 10 or 20. You are in business for yourself. Don't ever think that you work for a company where you walk in in the morning, hang up your hat and turn your brain off and get a paycheck on Friday. No, every day you have to prove the value of your services you bring to the table. Every day you're being interviewed where they can say, do we want to continue employing Josh here or don't we? So it's much the same process as just simply taking the skills that you have and going to other customers and saying, could I provide my services for you? Five hours a week. You may not be big enough to justify 40 hours a week, but what if I would provide my services to you for five hours a week? Or if I did a two-week project for you? So all of a sudden, you're doing projects where Now, I guarantee you, if you're working for a company and you do video production and work is slow, I'll bet they're having you do all kinds of other things that are not related to video production. I mean, they're probably having you, you know, bring the inventory in and do a little shipping and go get the mail and stop by UPS, you know, and hey, swing by Office Depot because we're out of Staples. I mean, I guarantee they're having you do other things to fill the time to justify the fact that they committed 40 hours a week to you. What do you think happens if you narrow down to do just what it is you do really well with a competence that nobody else in the company has? All of a sudden, that becomes much more valuable. You may continue to have your current company as one customer, but now instead of paying you, you know, 15 bucks an hour because they have to make up work for you to do 40 hours a week, they're paying you $40 an hour for your one unique area of expertise. So yeah, I encourage you to explore how you could add customers 
But recognize you're in business for yourself already, and this is not a big leap. And you know, now, as far as your your boss feeling intimidated or undermined if you go get other customers, I mean, I don't know. I mean, if you guys do, geez, if you guys do weddings, I mean, maybe you don't want to do weddings with your next customer, but you could develop another area of expertise to do video work and just go ahead and do that. All right. Chris says, Dan, I downloaded your 48 business ideas. The one, what you could do with a truck caught my attention. I don't have a big box truck like you, but I do have an older half ton Chevy pickup. I was thinking about showing up at auctions and offering to haul items home for people. And that's one of the things that I suggested in 48 days. I showed a picture of my big 14-foot box truck that we keep around here for all kinds of things and let people use and so on. But I suggested, Gal, if you did nothing but show up at auctions, you could haul things for people and, you know, knock down a couple hundred bucks on a Saturday. And uh, Chris says, should I ask the auction company permission before showing up? Thanks for any help you can give me. You could notify the auction company and they would probably welcome it because it's just a, a service that makes it easier for people to buy. I mean, we went to a nursery auction here a couple of months ago. Now, nursery, you know, where they you know, grow trees and shrubs and bushes. Didn't go to an auction for little babies, in case that's where you're thinking went. Anyway, trees and brush. Well, I had my big truck. Jeez, I probably had half a dozen people ask me about delivering things for them. I didn't do that because we were a long ways away from home. But then I bought nine good-sized trees and had them loaded in my truck to bring home. But do you think that maybe hindered some people for buying because they had no reasonable way to get whatever they would purchase back to their house? Absolutely. So having somebody there would be an advantage for the auction company. But anyway, you really don't have to. I mean, auctions are public events. You can just simply have a flyer ready to promote your hauling service. You know, make it easy for people to reach you right on the spot. I mean, put your cell phone number on there where if they're across the field from you, they can reach you. You might even hit three or four auctions on a given Saturday morning. Then just be ready for people to call you, which they will. John says, Dan, I I wish to make an extra income selling books on Amazon and Half.com. I've visited salvage stores, have not seen anything of much value. Where else can I go and how would you recommend I start this side business? Would it be able to replace a regular job? I would very much prefer that. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of people selling books on Amazon, but now you have to realize you're, you're competing with Amazon itself too. So uh, they're a pretty big machine to compete against. So you have to find a source for books. that's going to allow you the margins between what you can purchase them for and what they're going to bring on Amazon. I mean, on Amazon and eBay and sites like that, I mean, books are going to bring pretty much rock bottom prices. I mean, my books that have a retail of you know, 1995 are going to sell for 10 bucks on Amazon or eBay. Well, that means you better be able to buy my books for $2 a piece, which is going to be tough to do. I mean, you can't buy a book for $9, sell it on Amazon for $10 and think you got a business. That won't work. You have to have more of a margin than that. I look for things where I'm going to have four to five times my cost in a selling price. So if I buy books at $1.38, which I often do, you know, I'm going to sell them for $8.00. At least. So you have to be able to have a source. And, and it, it may be tough to do that at, at yard sales, estate sales. The other reason I don't like that as a, a source for books is that you get things one at a time. 
personally, I think it's too much work to put a book up on Amazon or eBay where you only have one. So I only look for books where I can, I mean, yesterday, there's a one particular title that we're having fun with here, and I just ordered 100 copies again yesterday. Well, 100 copies. So we put it up, promote it one time on our website, and we can whip through a lot of orders because we keep selling the same book. So I think it's going to be tough unless you really find a source and create enough of an audience where people come to you for particular books. You can't do it one at a time and think you're going to replace the income from a traditional job. Let me grab a couple more here. Let me do this. This is a good one. Dan, should someone work on fixing their weaknesses or find work that fits with, you know what, I think I'm going to end with this one because I want to add a little piece in here. All right, the question is this. Should someone work on fixing their weaknesses or find work that fits with their strengths? I have read books on both. At my current job, I am coached on improving my weaknesses, but the more I work on the weaknesses, the more I am not enjoying the work anymore. Now, this is pretty stinking profound, and I love the way this is laid out. The more I work on my weaknesses, which is what the company wants me to do, the more I am not enjoying the work anymore. Now, in in No More Mondays, in chapter 10, it's a chapter that's titled Throughout Your TV and Your Alarm Clock Too. I've got a little piece. This is one of Chaucer's fables. In a Chaucer fable, I'm going to just read this through real quickly. A grazing goose found herself annoyed by a horse who was eating nearby. In hissing accents, the goose addressed the horse. I am certainly a more noble and perfect creature than you, for the whole range and extent of your abilities is confined to one element. I can walk upon the ground as you do. I have besides wings with which I can raise myself in the air. And when I please, I can sport on ponds and lakes and refresh myself in the cool waters. I enjoy the different powers of a bird, a fish, and a horse. Now, this was a goose talking to a horse. The horse, with seasoned wisdom, replied, It is true you inhabit three elements, but you make no very distinguishing figure in any one of them. You fly indeed, but your flight is so heavy and clumsy that you have no right to put yourself on a level with the lark or the swallow. You can swim on the surface of the waters, but you cannot live in them as fishes do. You cannot find your food in that element, nor glide smoothly along the bottom of the waves. And when you walk, or rather waddle, upon the ground with your broad feet and your long neck stretched out, hissing at everyone who passes by, you bring upon yourself the derision of all beholders. I confess that I am only formed to move upon the ground, but how graceful is my make, how great my strength, how astonishing my speed. I'd much rather be confined to one element and be admired in that than be a goose and all. I love that story. You know, it sounds like a lot of people I know, though they try to be good at marketing, computers, financial planning, supervising, administration, selling, rather than focusing on one or two areas of excellence. And my advice is find the area where you run like the wind with few competitors. In that way, you can raise yourself from mediocrity and experience uncommon success. But I hear You know, I've got lots of stories that kind of relate to this, but I think it really is sad that we often diminish our best gifts by struggling valiantly to develop in someone else's area of ability. I mean, there are a whole lot of things that I don't do very well. Thank goodness there's a whole lot of wonderful people around whose skills far exceed mine in particular areas that are important to my business. I want them to do that. I don't want to have to learn how to do it. See, I think it's better to 
you know, to focus on your unique skills. Do them with excellence and end up performing at a mediocre level in several areas. Now, here's a rule of thumb I'll give you. And we're going to wrap it up with this. This is a rule of thumb I'm going to give you for how to do this. Work where you are strongest 80% of the time. Work where you're learning 15% of the time. Work where you're weak 5% of the time. All right, you got that? Work where you're strongest 80% of the time. Work where you're learning new things that are valuable 15% of the time. Work on your weak areas 5% of the time. Use that model, you'll rise to the top because you're going to become known as an expert in something that a lot of other people can't do as well as you. That's the way you raise yourself from mediocrity to success. Wow. I feel like I need to take a deep breath. Lots more questions. Thanks for your contributions and questions. You can go to the podcast page, shoot your question in, or just shoot it to askdan at 48days.com. Either way, you can call the number that we've got listed there. I love looking through your questions. I love being on this process together. And like you, I'm looking for ways to make my life more meaningful. Every day, I'm fine-tuning what can I do to find work that's meaningful, purposeful, and profitable. Have a great week.